Ladies and gentlemen, uh, for nearly three years since the 2016 federal election, when Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull fritted away the huge majority uh, that Tony Abbott had left him, the overwhelming conventional wisdom, uh, the pollsters, the pundits, the betting markets, why the very scent in the air uh, pointed to a Labor victory on Saturday night. And for much of that period, a Labor landslide. If you go back uh, to late August, when Malcolm Turnbull was toppled, um, the Liberal Party, which of course has produced two of our nation's greatest Prime Ministers, uh, resembled nothing so much as a pub brawl. Uh, everyone, however grand or obscure, felt entitled to join in. And when Malcolm was toppled in the party room, the overwhelming consensus was that the Liberals had shot themselves in the foot. And talk was rife that the party of Robert Menzies and John Howard was on the cusp of splintering. We were told that ordinary Australians wanted higher levels of government intervention to, to contest with not just a climate mitigation, climate change, but also higher taxes and higher regulations to fight alleged inequality in this country. Peter Van Onselen from The Australian, Peter Harcher from the Sydney Morning Herald, Lenore Taylor from The Guardian, Barry Cassidy, Laura Tingle, Andrew Proben from the ABC, uh, not picking on these particular people, but they reflected the overwhelming consensus, uh, the overwhelming consensus in the Canberra bubble. The view was that Prime Minister Morrison could not possibly win and that the 51-year-old evangelical coal hugger uh, was out of place in modern Australia. But such is the magic of politics that the election overturned those dogmatic orthodoxies of the pundits and the pollsters and of course the betting markets and here we should spare a moment for that poor soul who put one million dollars on Bill Shorten. <laughs> Jenny Hewitt, one of our panellists, put it well in the Financial Review on Monday, quote, Scott Morrison's quiet Australians shouted their opinion loud and clear. No to Labor, no to its leader and no to its agenda. Jenny went on to say, quote, that resounding electoral slap has stunned Labor, costing Bill Shorten the prize he had anticipated his entire life and seemed on the cusp of finally claiming. Indeed, the Liberal leader, derided by Labor for being stuck in the past, now owns the political future. It's a shell-shocked Labor that's left trying to figure out its future direction. And I thought this was a key point from Jenny's remarks, and we'll raise these issues throughout the discussion today. Quote, Scott Morrison loves to dismiss the Canberra bubble for focusing on issues of little interest to ordinary people. In an election, it's the campaign bubble that becomes even more artificial and disconnected deliberately. Now, for what it's worth, I, I myself had a piece in the Wall Street Journal this week and I just made the point that the most dramatic failure of discernment in the history of Australian punditry happened on Saturday night. The most dramatic failure of discernment in Australian opinion punditry. Now, does that sound familiar? We go back to 2016 with both Brexit and Trump. 
the overwhelming consensus among the pollsters and the pundits and the betting markets was that Remain would win in Britain and that Hillary Clinton would win in a landslide. Yet Scott Morrison won and he won with a majority government. How so? What does the election tell us about Australian politics, the state of classical liberalism and conservatism? What are the lessons for centre-right movements across the Tasman where New Zealand's centre-right National Party is in the shadows of Labor Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern? What does it mean for Britain where there is serious talk that the party of Disraeli, Churchill and Thatcher is on the cusp of disintegrating amidst the chaos of Brexit? And where does all this mean for the Republican Party? Where does Donald Trump fit in all of this? Well, we have a terrific panel, and I'd like to introduce each speaker one at a time. Uh, Jenny Hewitt is the National Affairs columnist with the Australian Financial Review. She's also a former Washington correspondent, twice with the Sydney Morning Herald. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jenny Hewitt. And Sir Craig Oliver uh, is a former Director of Politics and Communications to the British Prime Minister David Cameron at Number 10 Downing Street for the best part of Cameron's Prime Ministership. He's also a principal with global CEO advisory firm Tenio, and I'd like to express my thanks to my friend John Hurst from Tenio for making Craig possible. Craig Oliver. <laughs> and finally, last but no be means by least, uh, Sir Bill English. Um, he is, of course, the former New Zealand uh, Prime Minister, as well as a New Zealand Treasurer and the leader of the National Party. Uh, Bill was a keynote speaker at our annual concilium at Byron Bay last year. And I'll repeat here what I said in my introductory remarks uh, for Bill's keynote address last year. And that was basically that Bill English, who along with his colleague, uh, John Key, they, they ran New Zealand from uh, 2008 to 2017, Bill is a role model to Western leaders and governments <laughs> who are serious about implementing productivity-enhancing economic reforms that lead to opportunity and prosperity for all. That's a heck of a rap, Bill English. Uh, well, Jenny, Jimmy, Jenny, let me ask you first, uh, how do you account for the election uh, result on Saturday night? Well, of course, I would love to say that I was one of those few pundits who picked <laughs> it right, but I didn't. Uh, and the reason I didn't was um, uh, partly because of the polls and also because I thought for a third-term government um, wanting re-election, the idea that they actually had to pick up seats was going to be um, a very hard ask. Uh, and I also thought, I think, that, um, you know, what, what's happened in Australia, this, this idea that you've got a huge percentage of people now reliant on government support, taxpayer support, and actually, you know, getting more in benefits than, um, and, and, than paying in taxes, I thought, you know, would, would mean um, that there'd be a, a, a bit of a bias towards Labor's policy, mm. even though you could tell that Labor, I think, just misread, I mean, in a way that... Uh, even at the time, I must say, seemed very dangerous. The idea of, of, of creating all these um, pockets of, not pockets, actually quite large, very deep pockets of losers um, that could be identified that would get very, very um, angry about it. And plus this whole, you know, class warfare thing, which, you know, obviously Labor thought was working a treat, mm. um, but... Um, the Liberals did not, and and um, and actually the Australian people. It's did interesting because in 2015, the general election in the UK, Ed Miliband, the Labor leader, in many respects was a Bill Shorten type character. He ran on a pl platform of class warfare, 
And all the polls, or most of the pundits, said that uh, Labor would win. And if the Tories would win, it would only be a minority government. But your boss, Craig Oliver, David Cameron, confounded expectations. How so? Yeah, no, it was, and it, watching what happened here just at the weekend, it was very reminiscent to me of what happened in 2015 in the UK. There was just an overwhelming consensus that the Labor Party was going to win. There was a kind of commentary at view of what was going on. And I think more interesting, having been in the centre of it, is what we were trying to do as a campaign just was hardly picked up at all in the bubble mm. or by the commentariat. So we recognised that we could win the southwest of England, basically back from the Liberal Democrats, and as a result of that could form a majority government. And there was a complete bombarding of that area. We used to take journalists down there every time. I think we visited it 35 times during the campaign, and yet nobody wrote about it. Mm. Nobody. So on the night, suddenly it was just a complete surprise. So I was talking to Linton Crosby, you know, fellow Australian who... Um, it was John Howard's he, key. Yeah, and he, and he was our campaign director during that time. And he said that he felt that what the, the Liberal Party was doing here was focusing on a very small number of seats, telling people in those seats that you can have a stable government mm. if, you, if you vote this way. And to everybody's surprise, that flipped round. The one thing I would just say as a sort of note of caution is that, that, that the Conservative Party in the UK, as a result of that, sort of retreated to its comfort zone. It suddenly thought, well, we've won against the head and everything's OK now. And a year later, we had Brexit. Yes. And the party is currently on 10% in the polls in the European elections. So Which is this uh, weekend, this Thursday? This right? Thursday. Yep. So the one thing I would just say is, like, I've heard a lot of people patting themselves on the back and telling themselves ah. how great they are. And I, I'm sure they are, but be careful. <laughs> don't indulge in <laughs> don't, don't indulge in humor. No. Well, Bill English, um, you're an astute observer of Australian politics, and we were exchanging emails on Saturday morning. We all, well, most of us have egg on our face, but let me remind you of what you told me. If I come to this uh, event, Tom, I'll have to say that the Liberals need the reconstruction that will come with losing government. Bill. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll still need a bit of the reconstruction. <laughs> uh, I think a couple of things apply just looking at it from the outside. One is it's a reminder of the relative success of our two economies compared to the US and the UK. Mm. Um, Simon here's just been reminding us that uh, in Australia in particular, but it's actually mostly the case in New Zealand with a few gaps. Uh, right across the income <coughs> right across the income range, everyone has done better in New Zealand in the last 10 years and Australia in the last 25 years. Uh, and that is just a different dynamic. Mm. So they're a bit more inclined to the economic story and certainly the um, style of campaigning both all the conservative parties have adopted down here has been focusing on the on the economy. And that's worked again. I can still remember in 2017 uh, when we started talking about tax reductions, uh, there was a lot of nervousness in our own party room, uh, but it turned out to be the right issue. And certainly if we'd listened to the punditry, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have done it. Um, and even though we didn't end up in government, it was still, um, still a pers such a persuasive economic case that an incoming left-wing government, and it's quite left-wing, have not been able to raise taxes at all and just had to give away the capital gains tax. Mm. So we won the battle of ideas um, in losing, losing government. I think the other thing when we talk about the bubble is first we've got to acknowledge we're all in it, as mm. indicated by that uh, statement. But the bubble, it's, the bubble itself has got even, you know, I can remember 30 years ago, 28 years ago when I started in politics, there was a sense that if you're in politics, there were contending points of view and they were quite robustly put. And I was thinking, what, what, would a, what would a Queenslander who is worried about uh, Adani, you know, whether Adani goes ahead, the shopkeeper you know, who might benefit from it, 
are they the sort of person who's going to appear in any respectable media outlet in Australia mm. saying what they really think? Mm. Which is, I don't care about all that bloody climate change stuff. There's coal in the ground, we can get cheaper electricity prices, just build the bloody, just dig it out and build the plant and get on with it. Uh, <clears throat> so the bubble's got so narrow that that is now an intolerable point of view. Mm. Uh, so now the bubble is, everyone's meant to think the same thing. And I see this happening even in corporates. You know, we and and we and this is going to be the big, I think, advantage of this election. It breaks breaks us all out of that, I think. So those points of view, which in the UK were the Brexit point of view and the, the shy Trump voter, uh, we should expect now to see them back being expressed because people do have robust arguments, robust points of view about their own economic well-being mm. and their family and their views about society. And if we keep this sort of ABC-driven narrowness, mm. um, then it's going to get even more disconnected. But I, hope, I think this week they might realise that. Yeah, Jenny, do you think there's a lot to be said for that? I mean, I think Prime Minister Morrison called them the quiet Australians. Uh, we all know about the shy Trump voter. I'll never forget on the eve of the uh, 2016 election, I emailed a friend uh, who worked for, she had worked for Obama as a health policy advisor and she obviously wanted Hillary Clinton to win, but she was driving around the outskirts of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which was a, a Democrat state. It voted Democrat every election since 1988. And my friend said to me, she saw a bumper sticker and it said, vote for Trump, no one will know. <laughs> <laughs> so is this shy Trump voter, Brexit voter, uh, the quiet Australian, what do you make of that thesis? Well, I, I think um, I, I think um, Morrison, in many ways, look, there are some similarities you, you can point to, but in many ways, Morrison is saying a continuation of the status quo. Trump was doing kind of exactly the opposite. So you don't want to overstate uh, the differences. But but if you look at, I mean, I remember um, in, in the campaign, um, I, I very rarely travelled on the campaign bus because it was so unreal and you spent a lot of time waiting around and besides I felt about 20 years older than anybody else on it. <laughs> but um, uh, but, but there, there was absolute shock at the idea that um, Morrison had let uh, camera, a camera into his church uh, and this was regarded as absolutely crazy. Uh, whereas of course I think most people, and I my my view was, and, and I was speaking to his uh, people afterwards, they said, well, the thing is, he's just trying to be himself. He's trying to be authentic and genuine. And I do, I mean, that's that's who he is. And and I think people, ordinary people who are mostly, he kept saying most people aren't that interested in politics. They're just not. And so I'm I'm actually appealing to them, and I'm just going about my daily life in that sense, like like they do, and I think they'll, they'll understand that. But those quiet Australians, why didn't they speak more freely to pollsters? I can understand why the Trump and the Brexit voters didn't, but is it really such a bad thing and to be ashamed to be voting for a Liberal government? Uh, well, I was speaking to a, um, a Liberal MP the other day and he was telling me that he talked to a few people like that that had gotten rung all the time, you know, marginal electorate reasonably, um, and he said a lot of them just said, oh, look, I can't be bothered, hung up, hung right. up. Just didn't, just did not want to engage. Didn't particularly trust the pollsters, less mm. that they were kind of ashamed of it. But even so, yeah, just right. didn't want to get in the argument. Didn't want to be lectured. But it, but they but felt they were being Bill, lectured. Bill. But, but isn't this isn't this the bubble? Only the ABC and a few others care whether the polls were right and wrong. This is that's after the fact. Doesn't matter a damn. Mm. The fact is, the voters' view has prevailed. 
uh, you've got a government, and actually what the voters will be concerned about is not whether the polls get corrected, but whether the government follows through on the assumptions they've made about what they're going to do. Um, and the poll thing, I think, is a, sort of a, an interesting way of trying to rationalise being wrong. It's like calling people populists. I mean, populist now is just a word for views that I don't expect to see on the state broadcaster. Uh -huh. Great. <laughs> Craig, we've been here before, though. Uh, when I keep thinking of the, uh, the, uh, the shy voter, I think of the shy Tory mm. in 1992, when the British Labor leader, Neil Kinnock, was the overwhelming favourite to win, major one against the odds and the term shy Tory came about, correct? Yeah, so there was, there's certainly a degree of, of people feeling slightly ashamed after a very long period of Conservative government. There's a degree of that. I think in terms of polling, though, I think to say that people were lying to pollsters is actually to misunderstand what's really happening with polling. Most people don't understand that pollsters put their finger on the scales in lots of ways. And when they get the raw data, they make assumptions about that data. Some of it they will say, we will discount this because of that reason. So for example, in the Brexit referendum, there were three million people in the UK who were saying that they were going to vote Brexit. Now on record, they had not voted in any election for the past 25 years, three million people. So the pollster said, what we do in normal elections is those people say they're going to vote, but we discount them. They discounted them in the, in the referendum, and as a result of that, three million people actually did vote. 95% of them voted Brexit, and it was enough to change what was actually going on. Mm. So actually, the pollsters were making assumptions about the society that they lived in and how people acted and getting it wrong. Um, I think the other part of this discussion is, again, I just keep getting drawn back again, as Conservatives just getting... Our people voted, our people were quiet, they were out there. And almost a kind of discounting as if these issues don't, the other issues aren't really quite mm. as big as they appear. So, for example, in the UK, people say to me, what would you do different in the Brexit referendum? And I sort of facetiously say, well, for, I would invent a time machine and I would go back 40 years and I would force every political leader to stick up for the EU and make the case for why it's profoundly important to our country. And they didn't. They traded off it for decades. They traded off slagging it off, using it as a proxy. And similarly, climate change. We can all get ourselves into a position of, yes, lots of people think that you know, it's very important. It's a massive issue. If 10% of what was said in the International Climate Change Report is true, we are in deep trouble. Mm. Now, that, there's nothing wrong with actually understanding and looking at that. And there's nothing wrong with understanding that people are going to make rational decisions about their own economic interests in the short term. But this failure to communicate mm. and this th thought, well, just because a whole load of people voted that way, that means it's okay, it isn't really. Okay, let's get back to a point that Bill English raised, uh, what distinguishes Australia and New Zealand from, say, the United States when we're talking about this populism. Bill's absolutely right. We at CIS have been unashamed supporters of the free market reform agenda that Bob Hawke and Paul Keating kick-started in the mid-1980s. Those reforms, you all know them, floating the dollar, deregulating the financial markets, slashing taxes, slashing tariffs, all of that, microeconomic reform, that's contributed to our 28-year bull run. Living standards have improved dramatically. We haven't seen the kind of inequality that's clearly evident in parts of America, as the Productivity Commission pointed out last year. So, nevertheless, the New York Times, in its coverage of our election, said, and I want to run this quote by you, Jenny Hewitt, quote, the conservative victory adds Australia to a growing list of countries that have shifted rightward through the politics of grievance, including Brazil, Hungary and Italy. Scott Morrison's pitch mixed smiles and scaremongering, warning older voters and rural voters in particular that a government of the left would leave them behind and favour condescending elites. The New York Times goes on to say, 
Morrison's performance amounted to another swell in the wave of populist fervour that swept Trump into office and set Britain on a path out of the European Union. Jenny. Well, um, <laughs> he certainly, certainly Morrison was not promising to drain the swamp. I mean, to, to the extent that the people on the Conservative side are, uh, are critical of um, Scott Morrison or Conservative Liberal, whatever you want to call it, they say actually he hasn't put up um, his, his agenda is not unlike unlike uh, uh, what Bill English achieved in New Zealand. It's it's not a dramatic you know reshaping of the tax system, um, and and really mm. d dramatically making the economy more productive. It's much more incremental. So in a sense, people were um, were voting for no change. But you know, in in a sense, I think. Bill talked about uh, on the on the national broadcaster. I mean, the New York Times, of course, has still been in a state of shock and continues to be in a state of shock about Trump. Yeah. But but Morrison is is a you know he is a much more moderate person, yeah. a much more moderate leader on on just about everything. Um, and and we'll see how that plays out. I am um, certainly you know quite aware of this idea of uh, hubris being a little bit of a dangerous thing because I mean obviously people do. Uh, expect him now to deliver, and as we saw from Philip Lowe, the Reserve Bank yesterday, um, uh, I think you know the economy is, is you know sure it's improved, living standards have improved, but there's a, you know there's a lot of headwinds there, um, and uh, and I'm I'm sure that would have been worse if if Labor had come in with with all of their taxes, but it's still a pretty um, you know, d difficult path to pursue yeah. that you can kind of get, uh, continue to have, you know, strong economic growth and, um, and uh, you know, falling unemployment. Bill, does all this mean, given the relative prosperity of Australia and New Zealand, does this mean that we're immune to the kind of populist insurgencies that are disrupting established parties across Europe? Look, I just think that the, the term is, is so misused for what is actually normal uh, differences of political opinion. It's been quite a while since the northern Queensland thought the same things as Melbourne, central Melbourne. Mm. I mean, has it ever been any different? Mm. Um, and they just happened to have had, in this election, some issues which had a highly localised impact. And uh, so you got quite a focus on those differences of opinion. Um, and you'd, you, you would expect that. And I think the, the, rather than, I think the danger isn't so much importing populism, it's maintaining the kind of bubble politics where there's an assumption that the people in northern Queensland should think the same as Metro Melbourne, because yeah. that is the assumption. Well, that is always going to be wrong. It's a bit and like Texas versus Massachusetts, isn't it? And political parties uh, clearly um, shouldn't be misled by it, and obviously Scott Morrison wasn't. No. And the Liberals, they, they, they understood that, and they were pitching in Tasmania and in Queensland and uh, did pretty well in most other places. Craig, um, this populist insurgency that we've seen in Britain, you, you, it's fascinating, it goes beyond left and right because yeah. you know, if you go to London, virtually all Labor supporters would be strong uh, Remainers, but if you go, I think something like seven out of 10 Labor constituencies in Northern England voted leave. Yeah, fascinating, how do you account for that? Well, so I, I agree with you. I think that there is politics as normal and I think that Australia is nowhere near a lot as far along as Europe or the United States. The only thing that I would just say is, a, is, is, is beware of complacency. In the UK, we assumed that the rules were the same 
regardless. And for a long time in the 2015 election, Brexit, 2017 election, everybody got everything wrong. And the reason essentially, I think, for that is politics was essentially seen on the kind of economic access. Where do you fit on the economic axis? And you can pretty much vote accordingly and see where people are. That axis in the UK, Cinque Stella in Italy, Alternative for Deutschland in Germany, Trump in America, that axis has shifted to a cultural axis. Mm. And the split between the two is very real and it's very visceral. It's very much about where do you come from, what do you stand for, are you a global metropolitan elitist who thinks that we need to pool our sovereignty with the rest of the world, or are you far more nationalistic? You're seeing it all over Europe and you're seeing it in the United States. And it's troubling and it's worrying. And I live in the country where there is a cultural war that is going on. People define themselves as leave and remain on issues that have nothing to do with yeah. Europe, much more than economically. Let's talk about conservatism because there's been a, a sort of a view widely held in many major parties, not New Zealand so much, but certainly uh, after Barack Obama's two elections, that the Republican Party had to embrace a more progressive view on a lot of social and cultural issues. Uh, in Britain, David Cameron, let's be frank, distinguished himself from Margaret Thatcher and many of the, the sort of um, the conservatives <laughs> in the in the in the British uh, Tory Party. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull, of course, uh, distinguished himself from Tony Abbott and many conservatives in the Liberal Party. Let's let's hear from Malcolm Turnbull. This was Malcolm Turnbull's interview with uh, the BBC's Andrew Neil, who was a guest here uh, several months ago. This was on the BBC two months ago. He said, look at the facts. Uh, could Malcolm Turnbull have won this election? Um, I, I am not prepared to rule anything out. I think it's quite possible <coughs> that he could have. And in fact, al although... Uh, I could think he appeal to Queenslanders? Well, he, I don't think he would have held the Queenslanders, and so that would have been a, a big issue. But I mean, and again, you might say the polls were wrong about him too. Um, uh, that's, you you, that's said, you said at the height of the campaign, Scott Morrison has proven a much better stump campaigner than oh, Malcolm Turnbull. There's, there's definitely no doubt about that. And I, I do think that the um, Morrison's ability to connect actually with um, the more... Uh, working class base. I mean, you know, he did. He's actually repeated the Howard Battler mm. line extremely well. So I, I wouldn't rule anything out. But I, I think we all um, didn't realise, or I certainly underestimated, Scott's ability to connect with that outer. I mean, we kind of all mm. knew he was better at uh, better at that than than Turnbull mm. was. But you didn't expect him to be quite as um, like. The, the the 2016 campaign, I mean, Turnbull, it seemed as he was on slow motion. I mean, it he, he felt as if he never got out of bed, you know, and it, whereas Morrison was like the Energizer bunny the entire time. So there is absolutely 
um, no doubt about that. But, but Craig Oliver, uh, David Cameron, uh, sorry, uh, Malcolm Turnbull in many respects saw himself as a bit like David Cameron, as I mentioned, the more progressive version on the centre-right. Uh, but it's fair to say among many conservatives and liberal voters, Turnbull's seen as damaged goods. Cameron, it has to be said, is seen as damaged goods by many of those Brexiteers who are the rank and file of the Tory heartland. How would you respond to that? Well, I would say in 2015, David Cameron became the first Prime Minister to win a majority for a Conservative government by creating a coalition of Metropolitan Progressive and Shire Tories. Mm. And in 2017, the Conservative Party had a 24-point lead and blew it by ignoring the Metropolitan Progressives. Mm. It totally blew it. And Theresa May's woes are almost entirely down to the fact that the majority that David Cameron won evaporated. And if she'd had that majority, we would be in a much better position. Now, you can pay your money and take your choice and make cases for it. There's a lot of people in Britain who believe that they can get a kind of coalition of left, you know, Labour voters who went for Brexit with the right. It's, it, it didn't happen in 2017. It looks like it's not happening now. Um, and I just think that, you know, that the Conservative Party was able in that thing to be broader, to be more centrist, to appeal more widely. Now, would that work after Brexit? I don't know. Bill? I think you've got to be re reasonably careful about generalising from, particularly from the US and Europe. Uh, I mean, I always think uh, whatever the party positioning is in the shorter term, you've got long-running um, uh, long-running trends around economics and demographics. And so <coughs> you see, for instance, the Republicans in the US look to be struggling with the demographic diversity of the US. You can argue whether that diversity is a good thing or a bad thing, but they do look to be struggling with it. Uh, when you look, say, in Australia and New Zealand, I think the centre-right has done a better job than you would have said 10 years ago of of connecting to the the actual fundamentally conservative nature of a lot of the recent migrants. Okay, basically Indian, Chinese, and New Zealand, I know we did very well with them. And it was once you got past the idea of thinking, well, these are people who don't understand New Zealand, and think, well, they're running businesses, they've got families, they like stability, they're a bit inclined to, to, to you know, um, they like a more authoritarian, uh, generally, type of type of government, which isn't really the Kiwi way, but it's certainly not all sitting around singing kumbaya, right? Mm. Not, that's not their way of running the world. <laughs> so, you know, in Australia, New Zealand, the combination of sound economy and getting a reasonable grip on what are, you know, in the next 20 years going to be big demographics of non-European voters. And it's quite successful, whereas in Europe, they really got no idea how to deal with it, despite their sophistication, and the Republicans you know, run the risk of going up a demographic dead end. Mm, Craig? I was going to say that there was an interesting study that came out in the last few weeks um, that said that the age that the majority of people who start voting Conservative, so the age that you pass where it's now a majority voting Conservative in the UK is currently 57. Wow. 57. And I think that that... that so demographics are against the Conservatives? Demographics are massively against the Conservative mm. Party. And I work in a business which... I was just explaining something, we're a consultancy. We basically, our job is to give capitalism a good name. Mm -hmm. And I'm fine with that because it's investment in society, gives jobs and opportunities to people. But you speak to a lot of the young people in our business and they are not happy about the values of business. They're not happy about climate change. 
issues about not being able to own a home mm. or never retire have changed values significantly. And I think if conservatives don't understand that value shift, mm. it will be a significant problem. Yeah, Craig um, and Jenny and Bill, uh, CIS last year commissioned some polling of millennials in this country. And um, it was by YouGov. Uh, and the polls showed that 60% of millennials, uh, these are people roughly in the age group of 22 to 38, uh, 60% uh, supported socialism uh, and uh, they believed that living standards in this country had deteriorated dramatically in the last 40 years, which goes against all the available evidence, and they believed that the governments were spending far less on health and education than they did 10 years ago, which again goes against all the evidence. So the point here is that millennials, and this of course reflects trends in both the United States and Great Britain, where the younger people are far more progressive in their political and cultural outlook. To what extent is that a problem for centre-right parties, Bill? Well, you could decide it's a, it's a problem which would be, you know, in that case, terminal. But I, I think that's the wrong way to look at it. Look, some of that stuff is just what young people think, right? And why, you know, Socrates used to go on about it. So let's not get too <laughs> concerned about a fair bit of it. Okay, so that's a discount factor. Uh, but some of it, they're right. And the classic is housing. And housing has been a baby boomer's boondoggle for the last 20 years. Uh, it's delivered massive capital gain to them uh, at the expense of uh, the kind of cheap housing that they enjoyed 30 years ago because they're sitting on the councils, they're writing the rules, and they're doing it in a way, whether intended or not, that is, uh, suits that generation and makes it very difficult for the next generation. So I think what conservative parties need to do is understand which bit of that millennial whinging is actually right. And the things that are right are they right about housing. Uh, a lot of them are right about the marginal value of the tertiary education that, that's given them the debt they've got at age 25. They were over-promised about what they'd get from it. Uh, <coughs> and But they're wrong about a whole lot of the other stuff. So I think pick, pick the things that are fundamentally right in, an e in economic terms, because that's in terms that centre-right parties are better at dealing with. So the economics of housing have gone wrong, and it's a regulatory problem, and that can be fixed. What about the economics of climate change? We'll, we'll go to questions after this, but I think we need to raise the question of climate change and energy. CIS is not really that involved in that debate because it requires experts that we just don't have, um, and we, we don't have the resources for it, but it's an important public policy issue. And this election, Jenny, was fascinating. If you go to some of those metropolitan liberal electorates like Higgins, Kuyong, these are the crown jewels of the Liberal Party, mm. North Sydney, uh, obviously Warringah at the weekend, Wentworth, notwithstanding uh, the Liberal lead, but the, all of these electorates, uh, huge swings against the Liberals on the question of climate change. But of course you go to the Hunter in Cessnock, Joel Fitzgibbon's electorate, he copped a 10% swing. You go to Central and Northern Queensland, these are resource-rich states, uh, you saw swings of anywhere between 7 and 12% against the Labor Party. So what's the takeaway on climate change from this election? Well, yeah, it's, um, it's <coughs> shall we say, a very mixed picture, isn't it? Um, I mean, I think the Liberals were seriously concerned about um, losing Higgins. I mean, and that, I mean, that is, is actually... Which is Peter Costello's seat, John Gordon's yeah, seat. Yeah, which is, you know, extraordinary, yeah. really. Um, uh, but I think... Um, so they did get kind of big shifts. And, and also, in, in terms of that younger generation, what they were concerned about, you know... You know, they'd, they'd kind of always say, you know, climate change is a very big issue. Of course, in the end, it wasn't wasn't enough. 
um, to to counteract either you know those who weren't that particularly concerned amongst our generation plus the older generation who wasn't weren't as um, concerned. But notice that Morrison did 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 not obey a lot of the um, people in his own party who were saying walk away from Kyoto. You know he was very careful to say. Australia, you know, we, we should be doing our part, we are doing our part, we're doing it in a reasonable, responsible way. So he wasn't actually denied, which I think kind of was, was quite effective. Um, I mean, and, and Bill Shorten was talking about real action on climate change, and it was kind of, it sounded much more dramatic, but I think it also probably scared a few people as well. Yeah, it's interesting though, New Zealand and Britain, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a general consensus, a bipartisan consensus on climate mitigation. Bill? Uh, well, look, I think the... Not, Climate change, real action is something that higher income people can afford and mm. low income people sure. know that means they're going to get a bill. So, and they're willing, <laughs> well, they know they're willing yeah. to spend, I think it's three to five dollars a week on climate change. So th there is a sustainable position for centre right parties in my view. Um, and that is to, that is to recognise that people see it as a concern and do something Australia, I think, and unfortunately didn't do. Uh, and that is use a price mechanism to uh, deal with it, and, and one that's scalable. So the whole time we were in government, we had an emissions trading system in place. Uh, we were able to set uh, ceilings on the carbon price, and we kept it very low through a recession, and it sort of edged up, and it's a bipartisan um, structure. The new governments come in, all, all wind about climate change, and have, have passed, a, you know, they're going to have a set up a committee. Uh, and actually, they're doing it with the Greens in government, the only ones in the world in sovereign government, and they've actually done nothing, except the Greens leader has the most ear miles of any politician. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a sustainable Virtue position. Similar. There's a sustainable position there. And what what the problem with centre right parties on this stuff is that uh, they they don't like the tax concept. Well, the price is just the variable. The tax is just a fixed price. And so they end up with a much worse set of options, which I might say is part of energy policy here, and that is bureaucratic and political interference in what is highly complex markets with utterly predictable consequences. And that is you always get it wrong. And that's why you've got high energy prices here and low security. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The market would fix that. Craig, uh, your thoughts on this general climate issue? Because Australia, to be fair, is a lot different country from both sure. New Zealand and Britain. We're, we're mm. far more energy intensive, resource rich. We rely a lot on coal exports. Sure. I mean, I, I, I would look at it as like a helicopter view of it is that I think the massive issues people often overestimate their political impact in the short term and underestimate them in the long term. Mm. So what is, what is the point where the value change that it seems to be going on, particularly with younger people, is going to actually be a tipping point at which politics just has to take more action. And I suspect that is going to come in the next generation and it will happen. If you look in the UK, environmentalism, single issue politics has just changed a lot of the way things are mm. done in the UK. A lot of that is the impact of the internet, social media. But things like single use plastics, it's massively changed. Suddenly we've gone from a few years ago that this was okay and fine, and now you actually, if you're holding a water bottle in the street, somebody will criticise you <laughs> for, for 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 holding a plastic bottle in the street. A lot of that is um, a lot of the, the stuff from like the climate rebellion. London streets were actually brought to a standstill two months ago um, by people like Emma Thompson and and all these people. Just like literally, you couldn't move around, and there was an initial kind of view in the media that these people were all idiots, 
and the, you know the, who did they think they were and she'd flown in from LA with a huge carbon footprint it wasn't she terrible <laughs> got a terrible <laughs> press for it actually the needle on climate change environmental issues went entirely in their direction wow massive changes and that's because the kind of it's back to our original point the bubble mm -hmm. um, you know the bubble is all saying one thing what's going on in social media what conversations are going on out there not the same thing Okay, now it's time for Q&A. Uh, Jenny, did you want to say something? Oh, well, Brilliant. I was just kind of curious. You know, you said it moved the needle a lot, but, but on what basis do you say that? Do you say that on the basis of social media, um, which, you know, not, it's not no, necessarily No, I think it's politicians' post bags. If you look at uh, somebody like Michael Gove, um, is the Environment Secretary in the UK, he is now going out of his way to make a lot of environmentally-based policies, you know, announcements, because mm. he knows that you cannot look like you're not taking this stuff seriously anymore in the UK. First question, Simon Cowan, my colleague who heads our research division here at CIS. Um, uh, Simon uh, is in the process, we get a mic to Simon. Simon's in the process of writing a major report on the future of work and how Australian workers will deal with the uh, creative destruction of the workforce. Uh, Absolutely, the and, yeah. and whether or not Morrison's Trump, and I don't think he is. <laughs> but uh, I suppose we've focused a lot on the centre-right for obvious reasons today. My question is, what next for the centre-left? So uh, Trump lost and the Democrats have spent three years trying to win the 2016 election back in the courts, in Parliament. Um, we've seen, you know, as a result of Brexit and, and also, you know, Miliband's loss in 2015, Jeremy Corbyn now has an absolute stranglehold on the Labor Party. Both cases, the Democrats and Labor have seen electoral defeat, they've been rejected by the Parliament, by the people, and they've moved further left. We've already seen suggestions from Tanya Plibersek and others that they just didn't explain their policies well enough and if people really understood how much better we were they'd have voted for us. What do you think the response will be from Labor? Will they see this result and say we need to drop our class warfare, we need to reconsider our views on government, or will they do what the Democrats have done and try and impeach Morrison or, or make, Clive Palmer, <laughs> make Clive Palmer the scapegoat? Future of the centre-left. Well, I, I think um, that they won't move further left. I know there'll be comments from Plibersek and, and it's quite possible you'll get um, Anthony Albanese up, you know, of the left as, as, a, as a leader possible. Uh, but I think um, most of them, certainly in the parliamentary party, understand um, that the government did reject their high taxing, high spending um, agenda and will have, they don't know how to fix it. Um, but I, I noticed it was interesting to me that both um, uh, Bowen far too far too late, uh, but Albanese started immediately started talking about oh we didn't talk enough about how to create wealth as opposed to how to redistrib redistribute it, and so I think that was a at least a you know a, a good signal. But they've got a long way to go, and there are going to be lots of knives out, and they'll, they'll just go. I mean, so Morrison, um, the Morrison government will have a fantastic opportunity for six months just to kind of basically. Um, set the agenda. I mean, this is a concern in Britain because, the, as, as, as you mentioned before, the Tories are really splintering. You've got the Brexit Party, the UKIP Party, and of course yep. the Tory Party. Their vote's coming down. And the Labor Party is not a centre-left party now under Jeremy Corbyn. It is a socialist party. No, no, it, I mean, so in the UK, the leader of the opposition is a Maduro-style socialist who supports the Venezuelan policies which have resulted <laughs> in a million percent inflation yeah. in that country. I mean, it's really quite hard to believe that you really do have 
people, there's a guy, his, his comms director is a guy called Seamus Milne who describes himself quite happily as a, a neo-Stalinist. Yes, it he's is a former comment editor of The Guardian. He sees yeah. nothing wrong with writing yeah. books saying that Stalin was a pretty good guy. Unbelievable. And yeah. so, so really <laughs> it's extraordinary. extraordinary. So what you just repeat that again? <laughs> he writes books saying that Stalin was a pretty good thing. Um, so anyway, um, <laughs> the problem, or that, the, you know, British soldiers, a British soldier was killed on the streets of Britain, a guy called Lee Rigby, um, and he was murdered um, by a very badly mentally ill guy who'd been um, made, you know, an Islamist. And um, Seamus Milne wrote a piece saying, well, you know, he's a combatant and what does he expect to be, other than to be killed in a war? Mm. Which, you know, in Britain is just like, whoa, what's going on here? But these are the kind of people. But it just reminds me that I think what's happened in Britain is that the, the Conservative Party, has its membership is about 72,000 people, and I think that their average age is about 72. Wow. And then in the, and the Labour Party, I think, has got about, 400,000 members, but they were the guys that were selling socialist worker on the street, that kind of thing. So both parties have been captured by quite narrow groups of people. Mm. And as a result of that, they're pulling further and further to the polls. And there's a lot of a sense in, the, in Britain at the moment that the middle feels very disenfranchised and a lot of where is that, who is going to fill that gap? Yeah, and I and think that's one of the, actually, one of the, I'm not, all, it depends on my mood, but sometimes I think compulsory voting is a good idea and other times <laughs> I don't. I'm actually at the stage now where I'm at the, where I think compulsory voting is a good idea because you, I think parties, you know, as more as fewer people join them in in some ways, they they do go both to the extremes more. But in Australia, because of compulsory voting, you've actually got to absolutely stick to the centre. Yeah, and, and going across the Tasman, uh, Jacinta Ardern, I mean, you scored 7% more votes, or, or your National Party scored 7% more votes than the, her Labor Party in the uh, August 2017 New Zealand election, and yet she somehow managed to win the election. Uh, we, that's another story. But, I mean, she's obviously not as left as, say, Jeremy Corbyn, but she's no Roger Douglas and David Lange, Lange correct? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, there's, there's particular... I mean, the 2017 election, instead of the voters indicating their preference, you know, that we have a small party in New Zealand system a small party decide where the preferences go mm. uh, but I think it's, it's um, well the, New Zealand's got this peculiar set of circumstances where in the next 15 months the three biggest issues going to be on people's minds are abortion euthanasia and decriminalising marijuana wow okay and that is going to lead to some realignment because <laughs> the Labour Labour has a big conservative has a big part of its base quite socially conservative some of them very much so, the Pacific Island community, for instance. So that's going to crack their base a bit. Uh, I think it's more about what, what's the opportunity that is created for the centre-right parties. Um, you know, any particular positioning only ever gives you, it gives you a few percent at the margin, but they matter. And so in Australia and New Zealand, um, you know, you've got Labour parties who uh, either have a, a, a social progressivism that is uh, unacceptable to the wider electorate, and that'll get tested a bit in New Zealand over the next 18 months. Um, they are kept, they're actually constrained now by the centre-right's view about the economy and, and the role of government. So in neither country can a Labour Party go out and say, we are going to tax more, spend more, and write a whole lot more rules. Mm. Right? That's, and this, uh, <coughs> that's, a, that's not the case. Uh, so it provides an opportunity for the centre-right to push a bit further back into their territory. And one of my little hobby horses here, and I admit it is a hobby horse, uh, the centre-left have always said they're better at being the government, right? Better at doing the things the government actually does. And the centre-right party's always been a bit hostile about it, and 
They want to be seen as competent on the economy, but they don't want to be seen as too competent at actually running government. And it's a quarter of the economy in our countries. And I think one of the electoral opportunities is that by the time you get to the next election, if the Labour Party gets up here and says, well, we are going to do more, better health and education, that actually the incumbent government wants to be in the position saying, actually, we're running the, those things well, mm. and the public don't respond. I think the public are getting less responsive to this thing. Well, if we spend more money, it will be better for you. And I don't think, and I think the centre-right shouldn't leave that territory to them if it looks like that approach is running out of gas a bit for centre-left parties. Because you can see a future where, despite the millennials' apparent leanings, the, these, are, these Labour parties are not aspirational the way they used to be. I think of my father-in-law, a uh, Samoan guy, came here in the late New Zealand in the late 50s, raised a large family, very aspirational, used to vote for them, and now doesn't, for a pretty simple reason. They don't, they don't stand for getting ahead anymore. So we've got to take as much of that territory as possible. Okay, we've got time for one more, one or two more questions, and the mic, Max is just going to give you the mic. Yes, thank you, sir. Thanks very much. James Pearson uh, from the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. I'm delighted to join you today. Um, didn't expect to be uh, joining you in these circumstances. <laughs> um, during the election, and certainly afterwards, there's been some commentary about the role of business. And uh, listening to what is a, a fascinating conversation, it's caused me to ask this question. What do you see as the relationship going forward between the centre-right political parties and business? Because there have been some pretty high-profile examples in the last three years or so where the business community has actually been seen to be at odds both on some social issues and on some key economic issues such as energy and climate change to the ruling centre-right government. I'd be interested in your comments on the relationship going forward between the centre-right and politics and business. Jenny? Well, uh, I think there's been, um, again, a few different themes running through there. I, I don't think there's any doubt, not just in Australia, but uh, in many ways in the US um, and in the UK, I think, uh, the reputation of business, the re big business has been damaged a bit. In, in Australia, that was particularly um, uh, exaggerated by the effect of the Hain Royal Commission. Um, but, but I, you know, so, and, and so obviously you saw business being actually quite silent um, in this election campaign, uh, which was interesting. Mm. But um, while Labor, but Labor was of course far more extreme, kept talking about the top end of town and that was shocking and, you know, big business and multinationals and things like that. So it was kind of, I think, slightly reassuring that um, that, that idea has been um, rejected. Uh, but uh, I, I think business is struggling with this, business leaders are struggling with this too, this whole, you know, ESG, you know, pressure that's coming on um, and not, again, not just in Australia, kind of globally, they've got to be seen to be, you know, acting responsibly and, and looking at a kind of broader social context. I think you're having a discussion on this in a little while um, and, and doing things for the good of the community. I think this is still to work out and I'm, I'm not quite sure mm. anybody's really got a grip on, on how the best way to handle that is, although as, as you said, you're trying to make capitalism look good. And Jeremy Samet will be writing a paper on corporate social responsibility. Uh, stay tuned. Next question, Peter Curdy. And this is, it'd be remiss not to ask a question about Brexit given that uh, Craig Oliver, who's here. Now, we should say Craig was one of David Cameron's senior advisors, and I think he was one of the instrumental advisors to encourage him to support a referendum. 
Uh, on the Brexit? Actually, that's not true. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just got handed the bag of crap and told to deal with it. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Uh, well, Sir Craig, this is a really a question for you, uh, because we've talked about what polling, well, pollsters do, but pollsters do what they do. They don't call elections or call referenda. Um, and you talked about hopping back into a time, hopping into a time machine, going back to 1976. But I'm, I'm more concerned about those three million voters you referred to earlier. And I wonder how it is you account for, as Director of Communications, you would account for that tremendous misreading of the public mood in 2016, and also for the, the claims that were made uh, in Project Fear that were followed with, uh, with great interest and close attention uh, here in Australia. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, I don't accept your characterization that it was Project Fear, but we can maybe, maybe, we, can maybe we can maybe debate that uh, a bit. I mean, essentially, I think what has happened in politics, and I think is that what happens is that you work out where you can win and where you can lose. And most campaigns are very much targeted on the people who are the swing voters and where, where are you going to go. And so in a first-past-the-post system, you have huge parts of the UK that just get ignored. So if you're gonna, if you're, you know, a Labour Party, um, you're not going to go to the northeast of England because you're always going to win there. And if you're a Conservative Party, you're not going to go to the northeast of England because you're always going to lose there. So you end up focusing on the marginal constituencies and actually the wards of marginal constituencies. And politics has become more and more and more Labour laser focused on those areas. And vast tracts of the population just ignored for very very long periods. So I think that when it became a, a referendum, when every vote counted exactly the same and had the same vote, people discovered that the, the techniques and the focus that they'd had didn't work in those circumstances. I also think that you know that, there, that people were incredibly susceptible to having you know their emotions and psychology frankly manipulated. They were told a lot of things that simply weren't true. One of the things was that Turkey will join the EU, and as a result, 80 million Turks brackets Muslims are heading our way. Now, that was a disgraceful misrepresentation of what was going on. <coughs> on the flip side of that, we went to the Caterpillar plant during the referendum campaign and a guy stood up and asked David Cameron a question. He said, look, I'm really worried about asking this question because I think everybody's going to think I'm racist, but my daughter is at a school and less than half of the people in her class speak English as their first language. When I go to my GP surgery, I don't recognize that there are British people there, it's like lots of immigrants. Mm. And so we had failed over a generation, I think, to explain immigration is a net benefit for this country, that the people who come to our country are actually net contributors. But if you're living in that environment where your society has changed, you feel nervous of it, you, people aren't talking to you, people aren't explaining to you. Um, just on the economic point, um, the project fear, is it, is it really the case? We've had massive amounts of hundreds of billions of quantitative easing as a result of, of it in order to stop the problems. The currency is currently heading towards $1.20 against the pound. It's lost 20% you know, of its value. Investment in the UK is probably about 15% of what it was two years ago. So don't tell me that it was project fear. Okay. Before we go to the last question, I should stress that we at CIS are a broad church, and uh, we heard that view on Brexit. But we all, we'll also hear in a few weeks, a few months' time, Simon Heffer. Uh, the yeah, no, you'll hear that it was Project Fear for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's a columnist with the Daily Telegraph. He'll be here in early September. Yes, sir. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for your views today. Uh, Paul Nettlebeck is my name. Back to uh, Sir Bill's email to you on uh, Saturday morning about a loss. Uh, being the best way for restructure and the splintering that we've talked about today. 
Uh, what would be your advice to Scott Morrison and the leaders in the Liberal Party to try and bring together uh, the more progressive left side and the more mainstream, I guess, conservative side of the party uh, at this time? Well, <coughs> I wouldn't give advice to a leader of a, you know, a party that where he knows them intimately and we just know them from a distance. So I can only reflect on a bit of experience around that. I think the first to acknowledge what a remarkable job uh, Scott did of bringing some unity to the Liberal Party mm. room and with the Nationals because that looked, it did look like a hopeless task. Mm. And I suspected that a key part of the success in this election has been all that internal backroom work which turned into the kind of discipline in the campaign because it was when you think about it, it was thoroughly disciplined. You didn't really hear from them much. Well, Labor kept saying they were witness protection, which was kind of right. Yeah, <laughs> um, and it gave him the room to do his thing, and so he deserves enormous credit for that. So maybe that's the job, sort of the job half done. I think part of the recipe is to expect those differences, because the National Party of New Zealand is no different. Uh, expect those differences in the first place, but respect them in the second place. That is that you have that view, but you belong here. And parties go through these phases where they say, well, if you have that view, you don't belong here. And it gets personalised. Uh, and of course, you've had in, you know 10 years of very intensive personal politics in, in, in Australia. So I think that's the thing is we respect your views. Uh, we, we expect the differences. We respect your views. Uh, and let's not personalise this because this is how it always is. I mean, that is the definition of a broad church party, is its ability to accommodate uh, the breadth of those views. And it looks like you'll have a maybe a better chance of that in the Liberal Party over the next well, three or four years. Final word, Jenny Hewitt. Because I think uh, one of the, the good things for Morrison about this election win is because he actually did it and is considered to have done it so much by himself uh, that his personal authority... Um, is much greater. And although um, Turnbull may be, you know, paranoid about all the enemies who are out to get him, they actually were. There were a lot of people in the Liberal Party who did actually were quite, um, would, would tell me, they would rather lead, um, lose government um, than have him, you know, succeed. Um, and they were fighting for what they called the soul of the Liberal Party, which is always rather dangerous. Uh, of any party. But anyway, um, Morrison has got the authority. He's also got the background where I think he can, he's been managed to appeal to uh, to not alienate the the, um, the more conservative members of the party and his, his electoral success means that the more progressive side will shut up, mm. you know, a lot. So I, th I think that that will um, help him. It's just a question of how how brave and how reformist he actually will be or want to be and what happens to the Australian economy. We haven't even talked about China and that's a huge issue yeah. as well. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking our speakers, Craig Oliver, Jenny Hewitt and Bill English. Great stuff. Well, that's it for today. Thank you so much.